0: Welcome to episode 110 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, the Culture Editor at Country and Townhouse. And
1: I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the Associate Editor at Country and Townhouse. Welcome back to the podcast. We hope you all had a very happy Easter. Now, today we're going to be talking about a fascinating exhibition that's running at the Royal Academy until the 18th of June. It's called Souls Grown Deep Like the Rivers, And it's a revelation showcasing in Britain for the first time the collective creativity of black artists from the American South. Most of the powerful works in the exhibition, many made from reclaimed materials, have not even been seen outside America's so-called Black Belt that encompasses Georgia, Alabama and Mississippi. The region's association with slavery and racial oppression have meant these artists' achievements have been buried and rendered largely invisible until now. So this really is a groundbreaking
0: show. All the works have been led by the Souls Grown Deep Foundation from Atlanta, Georgia. The collection was formed by the art collector William Arnett, He died in 2020, and the name of the foundation and of the exhibition derives from a 1921 Langston Hughes poem. The foundation aims to place the collections in museums around the world and return the proceeds to the communities of origin. The exhibition's curator is Raina Lampkins-Fielder, and we're delighted that she's here with us today to tell us all about it. Good morning, Raina.
2: Good morning to you both. Thank you for having me. Well, we're
1: delighted to have you. And um, you're talking to us from Paris, so thank you so much for that. Now, I've been to the show not knowing at all what to expect, and the first room alone blew me away with the power of the imagery. Much of it made from recycled and found materials like old rags, clothing, scrap metal, rusty tools, old paint tins, driftwood, and found materials like animal bones and feathers. What's astonishing is the beauty and spirit that emerge. Tell us a bit about that first room, because I know you intended it to elicit a very visceral response.
2: Well, yes, I really wanted that first room to be, in a way, an introduction to the various concerns, materially, um, thematically, between the various artists coming from the South. Now, obviously they weren't all friends and they didn't all know each other, but there are definite familial and creative connections that one can find between the artists in the first room. And it is kind of this like sort of visual, it's it's a it's a wonderful visual feast when you enter that space. You are first met by a triptych by the great artist Thornton Dial. And on, and that is flanked by a quilt by Mary Lee Bendolph, and then further works by um, Thornton Dial's sons, Thornton Dial Jr. and Richard Dial. And then we, we moved to communicating with Lonnie Hawley, who is this incredible multidisciplinary artist who, at the time, um, really sought out underrepresented Black artists in the South, like himself. And he developed a relationship with Dial. We also have um, one of Dial's relatives, Ronald Lockett and another artist named Mary T. Smith, all of whom had some sort of mutual appreciation for each other's works. They lived in different states and different cities for most of them. So it kind of connects some of the relationships between these artists so that it is kind of visually understandable in some ways to to the audience coming in but i think the light motif that really informed the selections of works and which is kind of introduced in the first gallery is is this notion of reclamation a reclamation of material a reclamation of history a reclamation of one's uh, a reclaiming of one's creative agency, a reclamation of one's own narrative. Tell us a bit more about
1: Thornton Dahl, because he was a still worker, wasn't he? And, and there's a lovely quote where he says, my art is the evidence of my freedom.
2: Absolutely. And, and, and it's interesting because um, while the exhibition deals with, you know, obviously the artists are looking at themes that have affected them personally. And so there are certainly... Many works that whose subjects and materials that are used really reverberate with the South's painful history, um, the history of enslaving people, of lynching, and and the Jim Crow era. Um, But at the same time, just having the allowing oneself to create really is an act of freedom. And so Thornton Dial um, really expresses that certainly in this quote. But that's like like the joy that kind of runs through the exhibition the joy of creation of a, and of asserting oneself Thornton Dial yes started in the steel industry and it, it, he's from Birmingham Alabama and so that was an area well Bessemer Alabama which is near Birmingham he really is this master at manipulating metal, whether it be scraps, whether it be kind of larger pieces. And certainly, you know, while perhaps not going to a more kind of traditional art school, the, the skills that he acquired through his working life really lent itself beautifully to the work that he created. And in fact, he and his sons had uh, uh, established a, a business, which still continues to this day, to make metal patio furniture that was based on some of Thornton Dial's chair designs in the 80s. And in fact, um, that kind of can be seen in some of the sculptures. Even one of the works by Richard Dial, his son, that's in the exhibition. They have a metalworks uh, fabrication uh, company called Dial Metal Patterns. And so, you know, that kind of professional and the artistic really kind of merged in a certain way. And uh, Thornton Dial really not only kind of sits at the head of a pretty amazing artistic dynasty, but, you know, that past, the job that he had really lends itself to the kind of amazing experimentation that he does with his work. So, how did the exhibition come about? I guess it all really started in 2021 when Axel Ruger from the Royal Academy contacted me uh, because of the summer exhibition uh, that Yinka Shonibare was um, mm. was curating, and Yinka was interested. And in, while the summer exhibition is very much a kind of British-based show, oh. Yinka was interested in expanding the conversation a little bit to other artists working within the Black diaspora. And that began a conversation. And late in 2021, um, Axel and I spoke about um, a kind of collection, a Souls Grown Deep collection-based show. Then a few months later, I presented the exhibition to the exhibition committee and A year later, we can all enjoy it. So it was a very quick exhibition, but we felt that it was also an important time. It was time for these artists' work to be shown. And it was a perfect moment for the UK to kind of take on this show as we're coming out of um, a certain sort of confinement.
3: And is it the biggest show that you've done outside
2: of the US? It's the biggest collection-focused show that we've done outside of the United States. Absolutely. So we work with other museums with their exhibitions, but this is really the first time certainly outside of the United States and only the second time that there has been a, a an exhibition, a collection based exhibition that we have, that we have done. So yes, this is a, a quite um, an amazing momentous moment for us, for the artists, for England, <laughs>
1: I mean, it's it's quite something. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. There's there's a film of Joe Minter's African village in America, which is in Birmingham, Alabama. And it's it's just the most extraordinary thing. And also, he's at the beginning of the catalogue. There's a photograph of him outside his village at the beginning of your catalogue. And I'd love you to tell us a bit about that, because I have never seen anything like that. I mean, I think we, we were talking, Raina, yesterday and, and saying it was as if, you know, all these bits of trash had kind of <laughs> risen up and transformed themselves into these extraordinary beings and strange objects and, and created this whole town.
2: Yeah, it's it's an absolutely amazing, amazing space. And if anyone can sort of take that pilgrimage to the African village in America, it is definitely worth The trip. I think before talking about the African village, I need to explain kind of what it comes out of. It comes out of this notion called the yard show. And really the sort of intertwining of the personal, the political, and the public is really embodied in this, in the yard show, which is a distinctly southern phenomena that was begun in the 19th century. And yard shows are large scale, site specific art installations that are constructed on the grounds of domestic properties. And really they sort of came about because artists, particularly African-American artists, were denied access to more traditional spaces of display. So the yard show really provided a platform from which black artists who were born in the era of uh, the Jim Crow laws could express themselves freely and on their own terms. And so the African village in America You're referring to represents one of the last great yard shows in the South. And since 1989, Joe Minter has been adding to this environment. And, you know, he creates independent sculptural work outside of the environment. And we have two examples of those in the exhibition, two examples of those sculptures. But both his independent work and the the works that kind of as you say just sort of arise out of the ground to create this this village they all kind of share the same concern and they they all both the village and his independent work really references 400 years of africans in america and his african village in america was born from his desire to ensure that the struggles and the contributions of black people will not be lost to a history that largely, you know, excluded and continues to exclude Black voices in its telling. So, you know, it's very much this aspect of reclamation and this found, these found objects. And found objects are imbued with the energy of their past uses. In the African village, he is constructing a slave ship that, again, is made out of recycled materials, Golf clubs, um, recycled wood, uh, found metal—that um, is—that creates this unbelievable ship that kind of rises out of the ground. And many of the artists in the show had yard shows, not maybe as uh, as immersive and enormous as Joe Minter's. I mean, it is it is quite a spectacular thing to to walk through um, the African it? village. It's um, half an acre. They're the most. They're like the large these. Like massive, sort of site-specific solo art exhibitions that I think any artist would want to have of their work. To be quite frank, tell us a bit about uh, G's Bend. G's Bend is one of those very unique places on Earth. Um, it's geographically very isolated. It's a it's a settlement that's situated at a hairpin. Bend of the Alabama River, and this area has given rise to over five generations of African American quilt makers and now the women in the bend really bring an idiosyncratic almost a, an eccentricity to their to their pattern creation to their aesthetics and their use of recycled fabric and their you know, quilt making skills are passed along from mother to daughter, from aunt to niece, uh, cousin, from a cousin to cousin or member of the community. And porches and kitchens really took the place of more conventional studios and lecture halls. And, you know, the work, the oldest piece in the exhibition actually is um, a quilt by Rachel Carey George. It's a housetop half log cabin quilt, and it comes from the 1930s. And it, really kind of shows that willingness in the bend in, in well in G's bend to to bend actually and break <laughs> away from traditional form. And in fact, most G's bend quilts can be called improvisational or as they term it in the bend, my way quilts. Until really the middle of the 20th century, the majority of patchwork quilts from the area were constructed from the remains of ragged shirts, dress bottoms, worn-out denim work trousers it's a deeply rural area people really farmed people worked hard in that area and so when you wear out your clothes instead of throwing them the wa- throwing them away they find their way into a quilt and we refer to this as the um, the work clothes quilt and in a way that sort of provides this this record of of lives lived alabama is unbelievably hot in the summer, <laughs> but I mean, it, it is unreal. But in the, in the winter, particularly in unheated homes where many, where the majority of people in the Bend grew up in this environment, the quilts really were necessary. You know, I, I've had the, the, distinct pleasure of, of being able to go to G Spend several times and, and to meet with some of the families to see some of the new masterpieces that sometimes, you know, sort of come down from, you know, the attic or a box under the bed. And it was a singular pleasure of mine to sleep under a quilt uh, that has, you know, all that has the resonances of an entire family. And, the weight of know,
1: history upon you. It's abs- absolutely
2: the weight of history. It's it's astonishing.
1: And it and they are so beautiful. You know, the foundation has bold ambitions to take this around the world. So so, you know, just before we let you go, what what next?
2: Well, you know, we are going to take over the world with these <laughs> artists works. You know, I think, you know, I think what's really exciting about it and what's exciting about it for me and certainly us at the foundation, it's really time for these artists work to be seen. I think of the show and the work of these artists and the ideas that they, um, the visual storytelling, um, that is recounted through their work really is a gift to all of us, um, about the human condition, about those missing chapters in the art historical canon and kind of, you know, redressing that. It's, it's giving us the opportunity to see in a broader way. And I've been so encouraged and heartened by the, wonderful reception that this exhibition and these artists receive everywhere they go. So I'm just delighted to kind of spread that joy.
0: All of this is obviously freighted with politics. What is the climate now like uh, in the U.S., particularly in the states in which you're based?
2: Oh, my Lord. I mean, (laughs) you know, you know, the United States is unfortunately kind of um, going a little bit backwards in some of its thinking, particularly in the <laughs> South. It's a very, very challenging time, I think more violent. Uh, people are grappling with economic instability, um, all of these things in so many ways, all of these things that these artists have grappled with and are commenting on. yeah, it's a, it's a it's a challenging time for sure, for all of us. But, you know, you know, one of the things you referenced Th- Thornton Dial's um, uh, quote, my art is the evidence of my freedom. One of the things that he said, and, and I think that I, I, I find comfort in this, he says, art is like a bright star up ahead in the darkness of the world. Art is a guide for every person who is looking for something. You know, these artists were survivors through... Even more challenging times, to a certain degree, but still, they created. Still, there was room for reclamation. Um, still, if you were discarded or oppressed or 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 victimized, kind of thrown away, you find yourself again. Um, you, it's a, it's it's like the recycled materials, you know. It's like it's reclaiming yourself it's not allowing yourself to be silenced to be completely discarded to be ignored your voice still resounds well it's
1: great and it's wonderful to have you on thank you so much for coming on and telling us about it oh it's my pleasure
0: absolutely fantastic thank you so much
1: thank you Just before we go, we thought we'd change the mood entirely and alert you to a new musical at Southwark Playhouse. It's only on until the 29th of April, and we haven't had a chance to see it yet as we're recording this before Easter. But we loved the sound of it, so wanted to make sure you didn't miss hearing about it. The show is Berlusconi the Musical, which immediately gets you thinking it must be pretty colourful, and just for a start, we found out that long before he entered Italian politics, Berlusconi was a crooner on cruise ships.
3: The musical is being produced by Francesca Moody, whose company's aim is to develop brave, entertaining and compelling new theatre. This is certainly a great idea, but since launching in 2018, Francesca Moody Productions has won an Olivier, four Scotsman fringe firsts, and produced nine world premieres across the West End, London, New York, Nationally on tour and at the Edinburgh Festival. I mean, that's unbelievable. <laughs> can't believe that. So, we reckon they, she must definitely be onto something both compelling and entertaining with Berlusconi, particularly as Francesca herself. She has an MBE. She's the original producer of Phoebe Waller Bridges Fleabag. I knew nothing about this. I can't <laughs> believe who I'm talking to. Anyway, we're delighted to have her with us today. Hello, Francesca.
4: Hello,
1: hello, how are you? Well, we're very well and extra well to have you with us. Now, obviously, we're dying to hear all about this production. Now, I know it was the idea of Alan Haling because he is the television and film producer and also an old friend of mine that I used to work with. But the first question has to be, what is it about Berlusconi's story that lends itself to a musical? And is it going to be a comedy or a tragedy? <laughs>
4: <laughs> I think it's both a comedy and a tragedy. I'm afraid to say. Well, I think you know, it's um musicals are often a very good way into theater for uh, for people. and I think w- with politics in particular, I think it can sometimes feel quite like complex and complicated to engage with like political ideas. And so actually uh, exploring the story of Berlusconi, which is ultimately kind of a story of right wing populist politics through the prism of musical theatre means that we can make something that feels kind of accessible, which is really important to me, I think, in the the creating and making of of work. Um, But also I think, you know, as you referenced Charlotte, Berlusconi was himself a crooner on the cruise ships um, when he was in his early twenties. So that feels quite an interesting way in to the character. And of course, uh, musical theatre as a form lends us to a way of exploring stories that feel kind of wild and mad and a bit out there and actually Berlusconi, who he is, what he did, is just so unbelievable in many ways that actually the kind of form of musical theatre makes sense when you're thinking about telling his story uh, and I think we've talked a lot about how uh, one of the challenges we're going to have on this musical is convincing people that it's true um, <laughs> because you kind, of can't, you kind of can't believe all of the things that he the, all, all the things that happened but there isn't really another way to do to do it uh, if I'm honest
1: <laughs> is there lots of dancing in it as well party dancing uh,
4: <laughs> <laughs> we do touch we do touch on the infamous bunga bunga parties yes it would be criminal not to I'm afraid so so from what age to what age are you telling this story so we actually go right back to childhood and and we sort of Follow his uh, life, starting really as a kind of cruise ship crooner, and then becoming a kind of property magnate, and then and then becoming a kind of media empresario, and and buying AC Milan, and and eventually moving into politics, and then his uh, time in politics, uh, including um, uh, the controversy surrounding the Bunga Bunga parties. So we really do kind of explore the whole breadth. Of of kind of Berlusconi's tenure, we we kind of finish in a very poignant way where, uh, and I don't think this gives anything away because of course this is all in the public domain where Berlusconi is was sentenced to I believe four years in prison um, for his tax fraud, um, was subsequently acquitted on the basis that he had recently I'm 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 being slightly reductive in the way I describe it, but that. Um, but that there was a law that had been implemented, which meant that anybody over the age of seventy could no longer uh, be sent to prison. And who's written the music and lyrics? So the music and lyrics are written by um, Ricky Simmons and Simon Bourne, who met years ago as child stars on Grange Hill, and have been writing musicals ever since. They've got a really kind of interesting and bored slate of work. But Berlusconi's is their first. I think it's the premiere, the premiere of their of their work and their collaboration. Um,
3: as who's going to be who's going to be big artist. enough to carry off Berlusconi? <laughs>
4: <laughs> so our Berlusconi is um is, an, is being played by an actor called Steppenwolf, who is absolutely brilliant. Like I cannot overstate how fantastic <laughs> his performance is, because I think one of the challenging things for uh, anybody taking on a role like that, particularly somebody who still exists in the public domain. And particularly somebody that has had so much controversy around them is, is one to be able to inhabit the character and make it their own and not turn it into a um just a kind of carbon copy, um, copycat kind of version. But also, I think, particularly with a figure like Berlusconi, finding ways to charm us, to draw us in in the way that Berlusconi did. But I guess more importantly than that, because this, of course, is a musical, is that he's a fantastic singer. He's a fantastic performer. He has so much kind of wit and charm and energy, and um, he's also a brilliant dancer. How,
3: uh, how close is Berlusconi to the musical? Is he aware of it being written and created?
4: I'd be surprised if he wasn't aware of it, because we've had a lot of um interest from the Italian press. Oh, really? And, uh, yeah, we have, yeah. There's has a lot of energy. I mean, obviously, Berlusconi is a very, you know, important... Well, he's still um, in the government yeah he is He's in the coalition so um so i think you know, are you gonna are,
3: are people uh, have you had italian producers ring up saying we want to put it on in rome
4: uh we've not we've not yet we've not yet partly because i wonder is anyone brave enough uh in italy to put on a uh put yeah on they italy might find a horse's television. head in their bed exactly well quite
3: i mean it's obviously the end of diplomatic relations between italy and the uk but
4: well, that's a small
3: pri- it's a small price to pay for artistic excellence.
1: Well, <laughs> well we might sympathise with him because you can't just hate a character all the way through a musical or you lose interest. I mean, that's obviously been what's the trick is to obviously not uh, whitewash him, but he's got to be a lovable rogue to an extent, I suppose. Yeah,
4: of course, of course. And I think, you know, in much in the way that, you know, Berlusconi did charm the Italian public and, and, and uh, everything I've, read about him and heard about him I'm, I'm i'm led to believe that he was this incredibly charming figure so um, i hope
0: tony blair gets a walk on part.
4: <laughs> well ed you'll have to come and see it i'll find out charlotte and i are there <laughs> obviously it's a very 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 funny musical and for me it's it's in that really sweet kind of um sweet spot where you have something that's like wonderfully entertaining very funny very accessible but also is about something really important and at the end of the day hits that point hard. Oh
1: very very <laughs> very good luck with it we can't wait to come and see it. Thank you Francesca Thanks, very much. Thank
4: you. Thank you. All right.
1: Bye. Bye. And here's a taste of Berlusconi the musical. This is the moment when Berlusconi's trial that could send him to prison is about to start. Here's Emma Hatton playing Berlusconi's second wife, a former actress, reflecting on her turbulent relationship with Berlusconi as she stands on the steps of the court.
5: Tonight, through the dark in the crowd, I only see his magical smile. Backstage at the end of the play, a gigantic in my arms He purrs in my ear And towards me leaves Veronica, you're the most exquisite jewel I've ever seen I see the look in his eyes A masterclass in seduction With me as his
0: As usual, you can find us at countryandtownhouse.com. You'll find the latest digital edition of the magazine there, as well as our sister podcast, House Guest, Carol Annette, who talks to some of the most fascinating and influential names in interior design. We love your feedback, so we want to hear from you if there's something you'd like to hear us profiling, Please leave a comment or email us on charlotte at countryandtownhouse.co.uk.
1: Following on from Ed mentioning House Guest, this week Carolynette's talking to Claire Segaran, who, along with her husband Kai, accidentally bought a derelict Victorian house in Dunoon in Scotland at auction. They chronicled the restoration they embarked upon on. At What Have We Danoon? and now have over 300,000 followers and loads of volunteer helpers. It's a wonderful, uplifting story of triumph over adversity, so that's bound to be a great listen. And don't forget to go to Country and Townhouse's website to check out our dedicated guides to exhibitions and for ideas of what to do this weekend. You can also see an interview with George Feltenstein. Warner Brothers movie library historian and with Niamh Algar, the lead in ITV's new medical drama Malpractice. That really is all we have time for this week but next week we're going to be talking about some of the greatest names in music. We have two fabulous guests on. Geoffrey Marsh is going to be here telling us about what to expect from the Aladdin Sane exhibition at the South Bank that will obviously be a must for all Bowie fans like me. We're also going to be talking to the legendary Dave Robinson, the man behind Stiff Records that gave us so many great 1980s hits from Madness, Ian Drury, Elvis Costello, The Pogues, Tracy Ullman, Kirsten McColl and many more. Dave is now on a one-man tour. We came, we saw, we left, being subtitled The Horse Speaks. You're going to be able to hear it on the podcast from the horse's mouth. So having worked for Stiff myself, I can guarantee there are going to be lots of great stories. So don't fail to tune in next week. So see you next week. Goodbye.